plan for His people. Let's go to Leviticus 23 and rehearse that today. We need to have meat in due season and review a bit what God is doing. Uh, this plan has been understood by, or was, by Herbert Armstrong many years ago, decades ago. And he understood the spiritual meaning of what these days were for. God gave direction back here to ancient Israel as they came out of uh, the land of Mitzrayim or Egypt, out of slavery. And uh, were not given reparations by the Egyptians. In fact, the Egyptians decided to come kill them all. Uh, so we have things going on a little differently here in this country today. But at any rate, God brought them, brought them out of there with a high hand to show them that He was God. He showed not only His people that He was God, but He showed the Mitzrayim or Egyptian Empire as well that He was God. And this has been a landmark situation ever since. So He gave them a series of holy days throughout the year to keep and over the years, we've learned more and more the spiritual meaning of those days, what they are all about, and how they picture the plan of God. So let's begin in chapter 23 of Leviticus, <clears throat> this being one of these holy days, uh, and a very, very important one in meaning. So as the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Concerning the feasts of the eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation, uh, even these are my feasts. So they are described as a feast, and on a spiritual level, that's not just a physical feast, but it is a spiritual feast, that we are to learn great spiritual lessons. Now, what is the Bible for? Is it just to teach us physical things? No, it's obviously here to teach us the spiritual, and we understand the spiritual by the physical. God even uses that example there in Romans 1, where he says, You understand me by the things that I have made. So he points to his physical creation here on the earth and says, Look at it, and from this discern who I am. He made the sky blue and the trees green and the oceans full of water and fish and animals. And he made human beings, which are fearfully and wonderfully made. What an incredible creation we have here. So we look at these physical things and understand then more about God whom we have not seen. We can't quantify him. We can't even draw a full mental picture of him. He does say he has hands and feet and a mouth and hair. Uh, he's, we are made in his image. So we can look at ourselves and see a very, very small picture of what God is like because we're shaped like him, especially men and women too, uh, very much so with some variations that make for uh, a nice situation here on the earth in the meantime. But... God is very real, and he wants us to look at this very real creation and comprehend him better. I, I, it's hard to just worship somebody that I, the world tries to see, and they have trouble understanding what he looks like or what he is. So we can look at what he's done and say, wow. My thought is, if he can do this, I want to be around whoever did all this, forever and ever, because he's done such a wonderful job of creating. And we as humans have done a not quite as wonderful job of polluting, but we're working hard at it, as is Satan, to destroy what God has made. But even with all the pollution that's been done, you move about and you see a wonderful place that God has made. So, if that be the case between us and Him, then these feast days also have to be here to teach spiritual lessons because 
This book is all about getting us from human to God. It's an instruction book on how to become something more than what we are. We're very human. We're very temporary. We only live short time, really, on this earth. Uh, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years is not very long when you consider eternity and how long the earth has been here. And I do believe it's been here for billions of years, more than likely. It was recreated in Genesis 1-1, and God brought the land up out of the water, so it was already all there. It just had not been reformed and made hospitable for him to create us. So in Genesis 1-1, he did that very thing. He brought the earth up out of the sea. The world was here, the globe was here, uh, the land was under the sea, and the water was over it. So he raised it above, and then he recreated it and made it hospitable for you and me. So he put us here in a very temporary frame. One designed to die after living for a certain amount of time on this earth. Well, what's the point? If you only live 70 years, or a year, or 90 years, very short period of time, and then you die and that's the end of it, what's the point? Now, clearly, we were created and made. We didn't evolve. You, you can't do that. It's impossible. I think we understand that, that there is a God who had to create. This lamp did not just appear over a period of a billion years, uh, making itself into a lamp. Somebody in China did it for us, or somewhere, probably China. It was made. It was manufactured. So when you see something's made, you know somebody did it. It didn't just happen on its own. So we didn't just happen on our own. Mankind's been trying very hard to create life, and he's been unable to do it. As smart as we think we are, we can't create life anywhere. And when something dies, we can't fix it. It's dead. It's gone. Uh, God created. God can fix. God can make us live forever and ever. And that's what this book is designed to teach us and to show us how we might receive that eternal life, living with Him throughout all eternity. Now, the holy days give a picture of His plan of how He takes us from this temporary, which we are, to something magnificent, which we shall become. That's what it's all about. So the holy days become very, very important. What do the holidays of the world teach us? Well, they teach us that old fat men come down little chimneys and have reindeers that fly through the air and bring gifts to people in the middle of the winter. We have another one that teaches us that rabbits lay colored eggs. And on and on it goes with a bunch of idiocy, which has nothing to do with God or His plan. It doesn't teach us anything spiritual. It might be fun to hunt eggs. It might be fun to open gifts on the December 25th. So it can be fun, but there's no real meaning there. These days are chock full of meaning for us. So he told us to keep them. Now, how many people do? They say they're all done away with. Well, why do we find them then in the New Testament? Why do we find that on Passover, Christ died just like they sacrificed the lamb originally? And he is the greatest spiritual thing that has ever been on this earth. So the Passover immediately is introduced as having great spiritual value when you couple the physical keeping of it in the Old Testament with the spiritual side of it in Christ's sacrifice in the New Testament.
it immediately gives you that upgrade of the physical picturing that which is greater. So that's what he does with all of them. That's just the very beginning with the important thing. Because God said that as people, we would be prone to sin. We would break the laws of God. And the penalty of sin is death, eternal death in a lake of fire. Not just physical death, but ultimately eternal death if we're not willing to serve God in the way he wants to be served and never rebel against him, as Satan did. And he wants to make absolutely sure that we will never, ever rebel against him before he gives us eternal life. So he puts us through this boot camp down here with human nature and Satan pecking at us all the time and tells us, now keep my laws and show me you will obey me and serve me and love me and I'll give you a gift of eternal life. But you've got to prove something to him. And that's what he's working on, is getting us to prove that. So we're going through boot camp, spiritual boot camp, in preparation for what is ahead. Now, people say these are done away with. Why do we find them keeping them in the New Testament? I already mentioned Passover. That was the central thing to the New Testament covenant was Christ dying so that we might live. Then comes Pentecost. That's when God's Holy Spirit came. And they were keeping it in the New Testament. It talks about the fast or the Day of Atonement and how Paul wanted to get, I think it was to Jerusalem, by the fast. So the early apostles were keeping the holy days of God all through the New Testament. And he talks about, in the book of Revelation, the Feast of Tabernacles the thousand years of peace and how people, how Satan would be bound and how people would be resurrected. It is just a spiritual part of the physical keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament. So the story is there all the way through, the spiritual meaning of it. And when you put them all together, you see that God is working out his plan on this earth to make us to be his children forevermore. Man's purpose is to become God. That's not blasphemy. That's what the book says. That's what the plan amounts to. He tells us in the New Testament that on the Feast of Trumpets represents the change of people from being flesh alive or dead, to become God. So all through the New Testament, it tells us about these things. How did Herbert Armstrong learn about the spiritual meaning of these, what were purely physical holy days? By reading the New Testament and seeing what value God attached spiritually to each one. So let's look at them as they are laid out here in a physical stand, from a physical standpoint, and then they see the spiritual lesson and the real reason then for keeping them. Ancient Israel was not offered eternal life at that time. They were offered blessings physically if they would physically obey. We have been offered a new covenant with greater blessings if we will spiritually obey. So, it's the same thing, it's just upgraded to a spiritual level instead of a purely physical level. So he said, speak to the children of Israel and say to them concerning the feasts of the eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. So he starts out in a, introducing them that they are feasts, and that's physically and ultimately spiritually, and that they are holy convocations. A holy convocation in the Hebrew or the Greek means a commanded assembly. These are important that we be there. 
Uh, it would not be a commanded assembly unless it was very, very, very important that we be in attendance where the service is being held. So it's not just something that people can go off and do on their own. A convocation is where people come together as a congregation and meet together. We are here to become the family of God, and we will all live together in peace and in holiness throughout all eternity. So it's important that on these holy days, God's people meet together and be with each other, supporting one another, and iron sharpening iron that we might fulfill our purpose here on this earth. Because there is such meaning each one of these days to that purpose, and that day pictures a very important part of the process of getting us to eternal life. So we're supposed to be here, and we're supposed to feast. Except on the Day of Atonement, uh, where you don't eat or drink, but it's a different type of feast. There it's just a spiritual feast, not a physical one. Six days shall you work, or shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the eternal in all your dwellings. So his first feast is the weekly Sabbath. It is a holy convocation. He com commands us to meet together and feast before him every seventh day. Now he established that at creation. In six days he transformed this blob that was the earth into a hospitable place with a specific wonderful garden in it and made it so that man could survive there and during that time he created man. And then on the seventh day after all the work was done and man was here, he rested. And he looked at all the work he had done and he said that it was very good. He had done a good job, had a good week when he created the earth as it is, and us. So he rested from that, and he established it. Paul tells us in Hebrews 4, among other places, that it is a picture of the rest to come, which is described as the millennium, a thousand years of reign here on the earth by Christ with his Father with him, and that they will rule here a thousand years. So, the weekly Sabbath pictures that completed plan, just as it pictured a completed recreation of earth, it pictures a complete recreation of man to get us to the point of eternal life. So, 6,000 years is allotted to man and to Satan to be tempted, to be tried, to be tested, to be given an opportunity, for some, not all yet, to be a part of the kingdom of God. And it is listed as a 7,000-year plan, just like the creation week. 6,000 years, we do all our work, our travail, our difficulties, and the 7,000 years then is a time of rest from Satan and the vagaries of human nature and this world around us doing what's wrong. We'll get to that as we go. But the Sabbath day is a very, very important time. Now, it immediately creates problems if you keep Sunday, because that was the first day of the week, and the earth was not even here. How could God celebrate the work he'd done on the first day when the Work hadn't even been done. He only did a very small part of it on the first day. So we got a whole world that's trying to worship on a day that didn't picture anything. The seventh day does. The work was complete. Now rest. Think about 
all that God is doing and has done, and be at peace on the seventh day. So it is introduced <clears throat> as the weekly reminder of his plan. Now, the rest of these days are only there to be kept once a year as a yearly reminder. But we, being human beings, need a weekly reminder of who God is and what he's doing and what his plan and his purpose is. So he gave us a seventh day, not just to sleep, but to rehearse his plan and our part in it. So every week we meet and discuss different elements of the life that he wants us to live. Because when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he instructed them on how they should live and what they should do. And they almost immediately went a different direction. So he gave us this book of history from Genesis to Revelation so that we can get together every week and discuss how he wants us to live. And then we don't go out on Sunday and Monday and do like Adam and Eve did and go a different way. This is an instruction book for how we live the other six days. And then we go out and do it, not just walk out and quickly forget everything we've heard and learned and we're reminded of. It's a way of life is what this book is. It's an instruction book in how to live. So we get that instruction every week <clears throat> without fail. And then we come to these annual feasts. Verse 4. These are the feasts of the eternal, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. So it shows that they are seasonal. They come in different seasons of the year. Uh, they're not weekly. Uh, the Sabbath comes in every season and in every week. But these just come within their own season. And the first one starts in the first month of God's calendar, in the spring. In the fourteenth day of the first month, at even, is the Lord's Passover. The beginning of the fourteenth day, uh, end of the thirteenth day, as the sun goes down, on the beginning of the 14th day. And you keep that day as the first day of the Feast of Passover. The Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Eternal. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Now there's some confusion on verse 6. And there was for many, many years in the church because we mistakenly thought that there were eight days of unleavened bread. It says seven here, doesn't it? But we were supposed to have unleavened bread at the Passover service, and then we thought we had a free day of leavening uh, the next day, and then we had another seven days of unleavened bread starting on the 15th. Now, that's a little bit of a difficulty understanding it the way it is written, but it does say uh, that it's a total of seven days that we eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall do no servile work therein. Now, what first day? Is the first day the Passover service and the next day? Or do we have the Passover service, a free day, and then seven more days? Which is the way we thought that it was. Now he says the first day is a holy convocation. So we thought that that meant uh, the 15th was a holy convocation and a feast day. Let's go back to Exodus 12 just for a few minutes. I won't spend a lot of time on this. I... I think we understand it now pretty clearly. But here they kept the Passover at the beginning of the 14th as the sun went down. And they were to spend that evening eating the Passover. And they were to 
have their sandals on, their cane by, ready to walk, ready to go, all dressed and ready. And at midnight that night, Christ killed all the firstborn of Egypt. And those underneath the blood of the lamb that was spread upon the lintel of the doorpost were spared. Just as we are spared if we come under the blood of the Lamb, who is now Christ, not a physical animal. So it was that night that they were to be ready to flee, and Christ passed by that night and smote the land of Egypt, into verse 13. And this day, the one we're talking about, which one is that? Well, that's the 14th. That's the only thing that's been introduced so far is the 14th. This day, the night, when the death angel would come, or Christ would come, was still the 14th. And this day, the 14th, shall be to you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the eternal throughout our, your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance Forever. So he says here that Passover day, the same day that they sacrificed the lamb and stayed up till midnight and Christ killed the firstborn, is a feast, a memorial, and a holy convocation and an ordinance forever. So it's that day that is marked here. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. So you begin with that one. It's the first day, just like Leviticus 23 says, but it's a little awkwardly worded there, and people go by that instead of all the clear scriptures, which say it's a feast of seven days, like it says in Ezekiel, and other places we've been through. So you keep it from the first day till the seventh day, and if you don't, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And then he explains, In the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work will be done in them, save that which every man must eat. So we are to prepare for the weekly Sabbath, and get most of our food ready, and do very, very little cooking or preparation on the Sabbath day. Uh, it is set aside with a day ahead. On the holy days, except atonement, it does say cooking can be done. So he makes a difference between it and the weekly Sabbath. You should have most of your cooking for potluck, in other words, done on Friday. It shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. Still speaking of the same day, hasn't changed to the 15th, has it? Still talking about that selfsame day. And when were they sprung? That night, Passover night, at midnight, they were sprung. And they were told to hurry up and get out of where you are. And Moses had already told them where they were to gather. So they left that night and went to get organized the next day and keep going and get on out of there. So they didn't wait till the 15th to leave. They left that night. That's why they had their cane their walking stick, and their sandals on, and their shoes, and their kneading troughs, ready to throw on their back, and herd their goats and sheep and cows, and get out of there. And they took from the Egyptians, who were offering jewels and everything valuable, on the way. They spoiled the Egyptians. The, the Egyptians were really actually paying them to leave, <laughs> We just lost our firstborn of our people, of our animals, everything. Get! Here, take this, just go, was the attitude. That's explained a little later on. We won't have time to get to that. 
Then he says it very clearly here. In the first month, in the fourteenth day of the month, at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. So he says you eat unleavened bread beginning the fourteenth day, right? Through the twenty-first day. Count it. Fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth is seven days until the twenty-first day. Not including the twenty-first, but until. Fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Till the beginning of the twenty-first, and it's over. The way we were doing it, we kept one on the fourteenth, only we didn't really keep it. And then we kept seven more, uh, which made it over at the end of the 21st, not the beginning of the 21st. Seven days, not eight, there be, shall there be no leaven in your houses, and if, it is, if there is, you're cut off. Well, how did Paul show the spiritual meaning of that? He said, leavening equals, during those days, Vanity, self, self-importance, self-righteousness, ego, and that we're not to have that but to eat flatbread for those seven days, which is what we do. So let's just take a quick microcosm of Passover as far as how it fits the plan of God. Mankind sinned. Starting with Adam and Eve, and every man since then has sinned, except Christ himself. Everybody else has sinned. Nobody is exempt. We all have, and come short of the glory of God. Now, since the penalty of sin is death, it only takes one. penalty of any sin is death. Now, we've all sinned a whole lot more than that, haven't we? A whole lot more than that. Every commandment there is, we've broken. Maybe you didn't physically kill somebody, but you certainly had some hate and anger and animosity at some time, which is the same attitude as killing. And maybe you wished you could kill somebody. Well, that's the spirit of murder. And we have to keep the spirit of the law, not just the physical. And all the commandments are that way. So... The first issue with the holy days is we put ourselves in a really bad place. We're going to have to die for our sins. Not just physically on this earth, but not have eternal life either. Unless somehow that's fixed. Because the penalty is inexorable. It's there. So, what was the Passover? Well, in the New Testament, it was Christ who ate the lamb at evening on the 14th, and then he died on the afternoon of the 14th. Everything that was truly important above head and shoulders above everything else was done on the 14th. And we used to think that was just a work day. No. Everything that was important was going on on the 14th, not the 15th. They were just walking out of Egypt on the 15th. And Christ was in his tomb on the 15th. Everything that had to do with our salvations on the 14th. Why do you think Satan would want us to keep the 15th? Why do you think he'd want us to keep Sunday? Same reason. He doesn't want us doing it the way God ordained it because he doesn't want Christ in the picture. And the Jews keep the 15th instead of the 14th. And they don't accept Christ, and he's not in their picture. See why it's so important for us to keep the day holy that Christ made holy way back and then corroborated its holiness by dying on that day. I shouldn't have my mind on building a house or fixing a car on the 14th. I should have it on him suffering And going through hell on earth, mocked by man and Satan, and tortured, 
and dying on the 14th. That's where our mind should be, not on just frivolous things of this life. He did the most important thing that could possibly be done on the 14th. It's the holy convocation. It's the feast day. It's the ordinance forever because it's the most important day. Why keep the 15th when nothing important happened except sleeping and marching? It's all that was done on the 15th. So the plan of salvation begins uh, with Christ's sacrifice. Because unless we get rid of sin, there is no eternal life. And the rest of the holy days, you might as well just forget. If the first one doesn't have any meaning, the rest are worthless. So his day was the 14th. That's when he did the things necessary for salvation. Then you have six more days following that where he tells us to continue. We're supposed to be putting out sin on the first day, of course. But he is the one who did the most to put sin out, to get rid of it. And then we're to spend that day, plus the next six in particular, continuing to put sin out that does not already necessarily exist. Okay? If he wiped out our sin on the first day, then the next six are there for us to continue to work at getting sin out of our lives. And he gave us 6,000 years again, pictured by the Sabbath, to get rid of man's way of life and sin and Satan's way and live God's way. So, Passover day is so, so important, and it's a total of seven days. So, it is there to get rid of our sin that does exist, and future sins, and we are called upon in the New Testament then, to continue to put sin out, that we are not to sin, and all through the New Testament, that's what it's about, is keep the commandments and don't sin, you can't earn salvation, but God will reward those whose good works are there, who are willing to work at not sinning. Because what are you doing? If you continue to sin, you're just throwing it in Christ's face. He was willing to go through torture, unknown to man to that point, that your sins might be forgiven. So if you continue in sin, you're minimizing his sacrifice and saying, eh, doesn't matter. And that's what the whole Christian world does. Oh, we can go ahead and do what we want to do because grace saves us. All we do is take his name and everything's done. No, it's not. Not by a long shot. He will reward those who serve Him and obey Him and love Him and live the way He lives. And He doesn't live a life of sin. He never breaks His own laws. And He tells us, don't you break my laws, and then I'll allow you to live with me forever and ever, and everybody will keep the law, and everybody will be happy and at peace. So yes, we have to keep it. And not throw his blood in his own face. So there's great spiritual meaning in this first feast. Then he comes to the second one where we are today. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you become into the land which I give you, that was the promised land that they were going to be going into, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. It would have become their harvest because it was now their land when they went in there. It wasn't uh, the Philistines or the Hivites or Hittites' harvest. It became their harvest. And you shall wave the sheaf before the Eternal to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So that puts a weekly Sabbath 
and the day of Pentecost back to back. And he says that from the time they waved the sheaf, you count seven Sabbaths, and then the next day is Pentecost. The Jews don't like that. They don't put uh, Sabbaths back to back. I see no problem with it. I, last night, the sun was going down. I says, the Sabbath is dead. Long live the Sabbath. Like the king is dead, long live the new king. Uh, this Sabbath's done, but we got another one right now. Great. Uh, I get to rest two days. <laughs> that's, that's okay by me. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering. He had offerings on all these days. Uh, they were important days, and there were all kinds of offerings, sin offerings and thank offerings and so on, uh, that were kept there. Now, we don't need to keep those. He even says in Jeremiah 7.22 that when he brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim, he didn't speak out to them concerning sacrifices. Those sacrifices were added later because of sin. Because they did not obey. So, here, he's saying, do these sacrifices. Because they began to murmur and complain as soon as they got out of there. Even before they crossed the Red Sea. They were murmuring and complaining. God's trying to deliver us, and yet we gripe all the way out. It's just not the right attitude. We should be so thankful and so joyful at the plan of salvation and the opportunity for it. And that way, these days should be such joyful days because each one of them pictures part of the plan of getting us completely out of sin and into eternal life with our Father and the Son and the angels. So they're joyous, feast days, festive days because of the joy of salvation and the, the great meaning they have in that plan of salvation. So they made those offerings. Of course, Christ became the offering. And these were no longer needed because we have everything he did to remind us of what we ought to be. To be thankful, thank offering, a burnt offering. He became, he became a dead sacrifice for us. He was killed. So all the offerings were covered by him in a spirit, on a spiritual level and are longer, no longer needed for us. But spiritually, we still think of him and all he's done for us when we read about these offerings. I'm sure thankful for him because the priests, the Levites, had to kill all these animals and butcher them all. And all they went through with all those rituals and... Sometimes I think, boy, i got to speak every time. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to get mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically prepared to speak. But this is nothing compared to chopping up animals all day. That's work. So they chopped Christ up for us, and we don't have to do that anymore. So we've got the offerings, and it says in 14, And you shall eat neither bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So we were to put God first. And don't eat what you have there until you've brought an offering to God first. Now we find that Christ would pray and give thanks for just a physical meal while he was here on the earth. And that's what this is saying, is thank God before you do anything for everything that he does for us. So we follow through, and we ask his blessing and give him thanks uh, just for a physical meal, because without him, he wouldn't be there. And you shall count to you from tomorrow after the Sabbath, That'll be the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. 
from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. We just counted out seven, and this is the day after, which is now the day of Pentecost. Even to the morrow, after the seventh Sabbath, shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meal offering unto the Eternal. And he shows that we're to give, uh, instead of physical animals, we were to give on these days a monetary or a value offering uh, for the use of the church, for the spiritual needs, and so on. And that's New Testament example as well. So there's a substitute. And you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths deals. Thou shalt be of fine flour and baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the eternal. Leavening is a wonderful thing, except for seven days. Seven days during Passover, leaven represents sin and vanity and ego. The rest of the time, it is a good thing that makes bread more palatable. And here, it represents the first fruits of God. The 144,000 who will be the bride of Christ are represented by leavened bread. So leavening is normally a good thing. Just for seven days only, it represents the wrong thing. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs, and so on. Uh, verse 20, And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the eternal. With the two lambs they shall be holy to the eternal for the priest. Now there's been speculation about the wave loaves, uh, perhaps they had to do with him waving the sin of the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's one possible explanation of it, because Christ's sacrifice will ultimately apply to everyone. Or specifically, people have thought it was the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But it could easily be both of those things, because... The Old Covenant offered just physical life, but those people will be offered in the plan of God spiritual life later. So they, the Old Covenant is going to be upgraded, uh, so those people have a chance as well. And you shall pro proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy, convoc holy convocation, commanded assembly again, <coughs> and do no normal work, it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Not going to be done away with sometime. Always be done. Was done in the New Testament as well. After Christ had died and everything that was done away had been done away, they were keeping Pentecost and these holy days. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not make clean riddance of the corners of your field when you reap Neither shall you gather any gleaning of your harvest. You shall leave them to the poor and to the stranger. I am the eternal, your God. Now, Pentecost represents a time when Christ gave the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. So there's your immediate spiritual upgrade from the physical to spiritual blessings. And they were to leave the corners of the fields... For those who might be unfortunate. Now, let's compare ourselves in that sense. Having been called of God and understanding these days and being here, there are a lot of people out there who are spiritually poor who have not been given that opportunity yet. And we're supposed to be willing to share with them. Now, we're to be the first fruits, that is, the bride of Christ. And there are going to be a lot of poor people who are left out of that. Billions of them. So this is symbolic <clears throat> of sharing what we have with them. Because his plan of salvation covers first his bride, and then secondarily all her children, which will be billions of them. And we are to share 
the blessing that we had as being a first fruit with all of them. So, he mentions the first fruits here. Well, that's the bride. So it's not hard to understand that Pentecost, by giving us the Holy Spirit, that is a down payment on eternal life, is the Holy Spirit given to dwell in us. And once that's begun, it's like a child that's been conceived in the mother's womb, and then it grows and grows and grows until it is prepared to meet life out here in the air apart from Mama. And we have to be spiritually prepared for a period of time in the womb of the earth until we can be changed and become a full spirit being. Not just a fetus, but a full being. So Pentecost pictures that conception. And it also then pictures, since the bride is mentioned specifically, and no one else, just the first fruits. That's all that's included here. But they are then commanded to share with everyone else. So this is about the plan of salvation, and it includes Christ's bride, and therefore, since he gave the Spirit to help us, it's like putting a ring on her finger. This is a promise of eternal life. It is an eternal life, but you have the Spirit dwelling in you, which is the Spirit of life. So it's like putting a ring on our finger and saying, I'm engaged to you. And now you will grow and be the kind of woman I want you to be, and then I will marry you. So Pentecost pictures the coming of the Spirit, uh, engagement to Christ. And then we have the long, hot summer <laughs> where he said, I'm going away, but I will come back. This is mentioned in the Song of Songs how he had left, and then he came back, knocked on the door, and everybody wasn't ready. Like the ten virgins, they'd all gone to sleep and had difficulty waking up, as did the bride there pictured in Song of Songs. So we have an engagement period in which we're supposed to be preparing ourselves to be the bride. Now what's next? Verse 24, speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the first day of the month you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Again, a commanded assembly. And no work. And the Lord spoke, let's see, and that's all that it says there. But we go to the New Testament to find that on that trump is the day that he resurrects people from the dead and who, those who are still living. Uh, to eternal life and the mystery of God is finished. First Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and on and on. We've been over those scriptures. So the Feast of Trumpets pictures the raising up and the changing of the 144,000 firstfruits into what? Into equal standing with Christ. He will not marry a lesser being. Kind begets kind, remember, from Genesis. So he will not marry outside of the family, outside of what he is. And we are far from being like Christ today, are we not? We're working on it, but we still lack a long way. And the best we can get on this earth is far less than what he is. He went through this, and then he's putting us through this, but he wanted us to know that, hey, I did it, you can do it. And if you do it, I'm going to upgrade you. So, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye on the Feast of Trumpets, or it's at least pictured as the day, we'll be changed from physical to spiritual and immortal, and we'll be on the same level as the one we are to marry. He has to upgrade us before he can marry us just all there is to it. Then comes the Day of Atonement, verse 27. 
It'll be a holy convocation, and afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. Do no work, uh, a day of atonement, or atonement, or becoming one, at one, uh, for you before the eternal, your God. And if you don't fast on that day, you're cut off from all of God's people. You won't be part of the bride. Because the Day of Atonement pictures, once we're transformed into spirit, pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement is a day that pictures his marriage, becoming at one with him. Remember, he told the disciples that while he was with them, they didn't need to fast. But when he was gone, they needed to fast. Why? Because when he was with them, he was there to give them inspiration, hope, encouragement, everything they might need. And then when he goes away, he's not there with them constantly anymore. And we tend not to live up to what we need to be to be his bride. We fall so far short of it. So, he makes a fast day, which is for what? You fast in order to quell human nature, to get rid of ego, vanity, and to be humble. So if he's going to transform us and make us his bride, we need to approach it with humility and meekness and poor of spirit, realizing we lack so much. That's what those first Beatitudes of Matthew 5 are about is the attitude he wants to see in the woman he's going to marry. That she needs to be all those things. And fasting helps get rid of ego and vanity and self and make us humble before him, peacemakers, lovers. He wants his wife to be wonderful. He wants you and I to become wonderful. And then we become at one with him, married to him in the fullness of the sense of marriage in the way he intends it to be. A lot of examples in here of how to conduct a marriage. And that's the kind of marriage that the Lamb wishes. So, we have a lot of upgrading to do by the Day of Atonement when we get the wedding band, if you will. And this is a statute forever. <clears throat> Now let's go on. Uh, it's a Sabbath of rest. And then he explains, you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, shall you celebrate your Sabbath. Now he tells us in Genesis 1, the evening and the morning were the first day, sets the cycle and repeats it over and over and over. And here he says, just like Passover, which is at the beginning at dusk, beginning of the 14th, the Day of Atonement is to be kept at the end of the ninth, the evening, end of the ninth, from evening till evening. we got people living right here on this property right now who are keeping it from sunup to sunup. they got the, the day so screwed up they can't even keep the Sabbath or the Day of Atonement. It's sad, truly sad. Evening to evening, not morning to morning. Duh, how clear does it need to get? Okay, in 34 then, speak to the children. Now here we have from sin being covered by Christ at the beginning of Passover, through Pentecost, coming of His Spirit to help us, giving us a ring of engagement, Feast of Trumpets we have transformed into Spirit, Day of Atonement, he marries his bride. Then we have another holy day coming here, which involves a different people. Not the same ones at all. Different people. The bride will already be married to Christ, and she will rule with him for a thousand years, Revelation 5.10, here on the earth in the millennium. Well, ruling who? Daniel tells us about a hundred million are going to survive out of over 
eight billion that we have now. And she will rule over them with Christ. They become the children of the Lamb and His bride. So we're here to take care of them. And that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. It's not about us anymore, except continuing to rule, but it's about those who have not had what we have been given opportunity to have. That's why we left the corners of the field and something for them. They weren't to be the bride. The first resurrection is a greater and better resurrection, it says. But they still need opportunity at life. So that's what the feast is all about. That's in the 15th day of the seventh month, Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. On the first day is a holy convocation, and offer an offering made by fire, and on the eighth day shall be a holy convocation. So he says it's seven days, and then he adds an eighth. There's a reason for that. A, a seventh, a, a thousand years, pictured by the weekly Sabbath, finishes the week. But there are some people who did not live into the millennium, who lived from Adam until then, who never had a chance at salvation. Now, God wants everyone to have a chance, whether it's an aborted baby or one who died the first day or one who died nearly a thousand years old in Adam's day or whoever who never really understood and never had a chance at becoming eternal God beings because they didn't know the plan. Now, Christ made it very clear in his parables that he spoke that way so that they might be taken and snared and deceived. He knows that under Satan's rule, which he has for the first 6,000 years, that most of mankind would follow Satan instead of God. And if he revealed his whole plan to all of mankind, and they rebelled and followed Satan anyway, he would have to destroy them. So God has held back this understanding from most of the world, from Adam and Eve on down, for the purpose of saving them later when Satan is bound and cannot influence them. So he's going to resurrect them to physical life in the period pictured by the millennium. No, no, that, that's great white throne. First of all, he'll deal with those who have survived the Holocaust. They'll have their chance then. Be taught the truth. There'll be peace on earth without Satan for a thousand years. That's Feast of Tabernacles. The eighth day was added for all those people from Adam on down who didn't have a chance. And now, Satan will be rebound after the millennium and they'll have their chance then without him around. And then his plan is going to work beautifully because they'll be influenced by the father, the son, and the bride, and even the older children from the millennium who by then will have been changed into spirit and be there to help those billions who never had a chance yet. So God's going to save most people. It isn't like the Protestants say where you've got this war between Satan and God and Satan's winning down here. Now, God has always defeated Satan. He's not trying to save the world right now. Satan is trying to destroy it, but God is not trying to save the world. He's trying to save 144,000 of us right now, and that's all. And then 100 million in the millennium, and then billions in the great white throne judgment that eighth day that it was added. Now, the eighth is part of the 7,000 years because all those people lived during that 7,000 years. They just didn't have their chance at salvation. So it isn't an extra feast in that sense. It's an eighth day added to the 7,000-year plan to take care of those who are actually in the 7,000-year plan but just didn't have their chance yet. That's what it's for. And then it tells you to live in booths, Feast of Tabernacles or booths during that time, to remind us that we were slaves 
in Egypt. What is Egypt? Or Mitzrayim. It pictures sin all through the Bible. We were slaves of sin. Now, they were physically slaves of the uh, Mitzrayimite people. But we are sins, are slaves of Satan and human nature. So our lifetime here is very temporary. And we only live a certain time and die. So these people who come up in, or who are there in the millennium and come up in the great white throne judgment lived a very temporary life when they lived. (coughs) And then they died. And now they have to live a life understanding God's way without Satan around. So we live in booths to remind us of the temporary life that we have here and how we have been slaves of Satan and sin. And those people, when they come up in the physical resurrection at the end of the thousand years, when Revelation 20 says that they'll be resurrected, will realize that they lived, but only temporarily, and that they were slaves in a bad system. And realizing that, without Satan there and without a bad society around them, they're going to be willing to follow God's way, and that's how... All Israel shall be saved, and most of the Gentiles. Because God has it worked out to give them a chance when they don't have to fight what you and I are fighting. So the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day are about them, not us. It's about us helping them and feeding them and taking care of them. But it's about them and their salvation at that time. So God has laid out this whole plan whereby he is going to give every human being a chance at salvation under optimum conditions. Now you and I, if we're called in this age, have a harder road to hope. We have Satan fighting us, we have our human nature, and we have the Babylon of confusion and sin around us to tempt us to do the wrong things. So it's tougher for us than it will be for those people. But on the other hand, we're offered a higher reward as the very bride of Christ, and they'll be the children of Christ and his bride. So, yeah, they'll have a little easier time of it, getting there, but they won't have as high an office. So we need to be thankful for all these holy days that represent us, Passover through atonement, and the opportunity God has given us to be the very bride of the Lamb. There can be no higher calling than that. And that's the calling you and I have today. And we're in the day of Pentecost, representing the coming of His Spirit to help us and of becoming engaged to Christ and Him taking care of us as His bride-to-be. It's a very important day in the plan of salvation for you and me. So, that's meet and due season. That's what we're here about.